Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we're shaking things up a bit and you get to hang out with just Stephanie and me as we talk about Stephanie's reproductive life planning research. Stephanie has an incredible body of work related to reproductive life planning, including a concept analysis on what is reproductive life planning, as well as an awesome mixed method study that analyzed how reproductive life planning is implemented in clinics, especially Title X clinics, that mandate reproductive life planning to be done for each patient. But before we get into all that fun stuff, Stephanie and I just wanted to also give an update on what is happening here at WCH. For those of you that don't know, this podcast is something that Stephanie and I do in our quote-unquote free time. (laughs) Stephanie is now a nurse scientist at the University of Iowa, and I am now a quality improvement research fellow. However, there really isn't anything free about the podcast for Stephanie and me. So to help us defray the cost, we have a Patreon page where our listeners can subscribe to our page to get various benefits. Our two most popular levels of subscription are $5 and $10. Within these quote-unquote plans, you can get access to our show notes, which are beautiful PDFs and or We can let you know who we are interviewing so you can submit your own questions to our guests before we record. We do also have an option where you can make a one-time donation to the show. We also want you to know that any money we make off of Patreon all helps support the podcast. Our first Patreon goal is to reach $100 per month, which will help us cover all of our costs to keep producing the show. Once we meet this goal, we want to be able to cover the cost of editing the show so that we can keep doing the part that we love and keep bringing you awesome content and possibly more of it. You can become a patron of the Women-Centered Health Podcast by going to www.patreon.com WCH, or you can find out more on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. We also have big goals for next year, which is offering continuing education credits for our listeners to the podcast, which we are really excited about. The last thing we want to talk about before we get into Stephanie's research is that we want to say a heartfelt thank you to all of our listeners. This podcast was born out of love and passion for sexual and reproductive health, and it has been so amazing to watch our downloads grow and get feedback and suggestions for our future guests. I think uh, the last time I checked, we're close to almost 15,000 downloads, which... Stephanie and I, again, are super excited about and can't thank you enough. We couldn't keep doing this if it wasn't for you. So thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, so enough about that stuff. Let's talk reproductive life planning. Most of you know all about Stephanie and me, but just in case, Stephanie, can you share with our listeners a little bit about your background and what fuels your passion for sexual and reproductive health? Hi, everybody. So a lot of anxiety being on this side of the microphone, so to speak. But to kind of go over my background since it's probably changed in the last couple of years too. So I have been a nurse for almost 15 or actually 15 years. And I started um, working in women's health probably about a little 
over 12 years ago. And I got my master's degree in public health from Tulane University in New Orleans. And from there, I worked for an academic medical center in St. Louis, where I did um, women's health nursing in the outpatient setting. And then we moved to Iowa for my husband's job, where I started to work at the University of Iowa doing research exclusively. And I was a study coordinator for a large um, randomized controlled trial. And while I was doing that job, my boss said, hey, you should get your PhD and the university will pay for it. So I was like, that's a that's something I had always wanted to do. So I started at the University of Iowa College of Nursing in, I think, 2012, getting my PhD, which is where I met Nicole. And through that program, I did different research in bone health, like osteoporosis, and patient communication surrounding um, the test results of bone density scans. And then that led to different trials on uh, weight loss and obesity and interventions, and then also HPV vaccination and a bunch of other little projects that I'm not even thinking of right now. But um, I graduated in May of 2017. So I've been out for about two and a half years. And I also, like Nicole, did a quality improvement fellowship with the VA. And then um, now I work back at the University of Iowa as a nurse scientist. And that job is pretty new. So I don't exactly know what I'm doing. (laughs) But (laughs) I really like it because it puts me in the hospital so I can help people translate research into their clinical practice, which is something I like to try to do on our podcast too. And as far as my passion for sexual and reproductive health, I kind of probably talked a little bit about that throughout each episode. But one of the things I think that I always was very interested in, I was never really talked about or talked with about sexual reproductive health. When I was a child, it was something that I always had to sort of look for myself and research. And a lot of that was not the best way to learn, Mm -hmm. Uh, made some mistakes or some poor assumptions along the way. And as I got into nursing school and learned about how the human body works more, and, you know, realizing that my friends who were not nurses or healthcare providers um, really still kind of stayed out of the the knowledge gap in, in their sexual and reproductive health. And I think too, when I started my master's in public health, I did the maternal and child health program and really saw the need or the really had a lot of research questions about why women have quote unquote unintended pregnancies and really wanted to start looking into that whole process. And that's sort of what led me to my dissertation in reproductive life planning. Excellent. So first, let's just start out with the basics. What is reproductive life planning and how did it get on the radar? Yeah. So, okay. So reproductive life planning, I, uh, like I, like you have previously mentioned, I wrote a concept analysis about it so I could really nerd out on what reproductive life (laughs) planning is, but really basically it is a kind of like an intervention or a screening that healthcare providers can do with, um, women or men 
basically assessing their their plans for having children or not having children. So it could be questions like, do you want children? When do you want children? How many? Or, you know, what kind of things would you like to do before you have children? So that's basically kind of what a reproductive life plan is. And providers can have that discussion with their patients or patients or women, men can just kind of have that plan in mind on their own. It got on the radar, I think about, oh, 2000, I can't remember if it was 2008, maybe about eight, 10 years ago. One of the the biggest pushes for it came from Title 10, which is, it's a federal program that provides money to states um, for family planning. So Previously, one of the biggest recipients of that money was Planned Parenthood um, and then other clinics. I I haven't been as up on the policies related. I know they're like defunding, federally defunding Planned Parenthoods, but that was kind of, you know, where Title 10, a lot of Title 10 money was going. And so the Office of Population Affairs oversees Title 10, and they started this kind of push for providers to talk to patients about reproductive life planning. And the one of the thoughts was, you know, there's there was a high rate of un, unintended pregnancies at the time. So just um, so you know what I mean by unintended pregnancies. So they define those as pregnancies that are either unwanted, which means that you never wanted to get pregnant or mistimed, meaning you wanted to get pregnant, but just not right then. So those are unintended pregnancies. And at the time, um, most pregnancies, I think it was about 55% in the U.S. were considered unintended. And that was especially higher in low-income populations, which is where Title X um, services tend to go. Um, So I think that was a way of helping providers sort of assess where women were with their pregnancy intentions or getting patients to think about their pregnancy intentions. So because I've read everything you've ever written, (laughs) I've also written a concept analysis. Um, I know that the big thing with a concept analysis is understanding the antecedents or what needs to be in place before the concept occurs, the attributes, and then the consequences of that concept. So didn't know if maybe you could talk to our listeners a little bit about what are the antecedents, the attributes, and the consequences of reproductive life planning. Yeah. And I'll just to give our our listeners a little background about what a concept analysis is, because it's a very sort of nerdy nursing, nursing thing. There's not a lot of stuff out there unless you're maybe in nursing about it. But basically, you have a concept in mind that's not necessarily well-defined and, and well-defined meaning well-defined in the literature, the research literature. So you do a systematic literature review, and then you basically pull from all these research articles or even like the gray literature. So reports or websites, that type of thing to see how people are defining that concept. And like Nicole just said, you look at the things that occur before that concept, what makes up that concept, and then what occurs 
because of that concept. So for reproductive life planning, for example, the antecedents that I found for it. So again, this isn't, these aren't things that I'm making up as Stephanie Edmonds. These are things that have been published in the literature by other experts. So the experts have said that what should occur sort of before this reproductive life planning is basically a, a clinical encounter, usually one with like an OB-GYN or a family practice provider and a woman. It could be a man also, but mainly it's written about regarding women of reproductive ages. So that's usually when the experts are writing that this type of reproductive life planning conversation would occur. And then the um, experts have suggested that this conversation include, I guess, five characteristics. The biggest one is centering on goals. So what a what a person's goals are. So reproductive goals or just any life goals like education, career, anything that could impact their reproductive goals. And then they really stress the sort of the person centeredness and that this conversation is personalized to the patient, that it is a collaborative discussion. So it's not the provider talking at the patient, that it's a conversation between them. And then also that it's focused on health promotion. So a big component of it if a woman does want to get pregnant soon is is preconception health or making sure that they're their health healthiest self before they get pregnant or you know how to improve your health and just in the in case you get pregnant or how to prevent pregnancy. And then the fifth characteristic is that this reproductive life plan itself can be fluid. So at each visit, a patient's reproductive life plan could be totally, totally change from um, the one visit to the next. So to always be assessing it. And then the thought and the experts have is that the consequence of reproductive life planning would be this reproductive life plan, if that makes sense. And if what what has been hypothesized, this has not been at all tested at this point, um, but what has been hypothesized is if a patient has this clear reproductive life plan that they would then take that plan um, and have clear health behaviors from that. So, for example, if their plan is not to get pregnant in the next five years, then they might choose to abstain from sex or to use contraception. If they do want to have a child in the next year, they would make healthy choices like quit smoking or limit their alcohol, that type of thing, or increase their physical activity. And then what that would lead to overall in the population are less unintended pregnancies, less unwanted pregnancies specifically, and women who have a you know better health quality before they get pregnant, which would hopefully improve the health um, somewhat of babies who are born. So low for gestational weight, yeah, in- decrease in infant mortality, improve maternal health outcomes. So I hope that all sort of makes sense. But that is a concept analysis uh, in brief, (laughs) because it is very long. 
It is long. And <laughs> and I'm going to pull us into the weeds for just a minute here, just thinking about my own concept analysis with responsible sexual behavior. And you had mentioned the word goals and planning. And, you know, I found this in mine and, and in just strictly speaking to your concept analysis and likely this is in your discussion. So maybe it would be appropriate to bring up, but did you find or see a layer of privilege in this? Yeah. So taking it, you know, it's hard to remember taking it back to concept analysis. So I did this concept analysis so I could really clearly define reproductive life planning. So then I could go into my dissertation research, which is looking at how providers and clinicians use reproductive life planning, um, because I wanted to see what how they used it and what the barriers and facilitators were. So in just thinking at the concept analysis stage, I already kind of saw like, okay, well, there's several privileges in mind. So for example, educational and career goals as being a middle income white woman from suburban St. Louis, you know, I was raised like, this is your career, this is your educational trajectory, you will go to college, you will have a job, and don't get pregnant at any cost kind of a thing. And so that was sort of my perspective. And I had all the means to do that and didn't have any unlucky issues either. So that was my sort of perspective, I guess, as as in my personal life. But in stepping outside of that, you can see like some people are just not necessarily, that's not their culture that for women or really anyone to have like these very clear goals that don't change to have educational goals, to have career goals, that might not be something that is achievable for people either because of income or they don't see that being mentored to them, or there's a, there's numerous reasons, or that it's just not valuable to them. And so getting people to think about goals when maybe they can't or don't want to achieve those goals is something I think that it's not just necessarily privilege. I think that's definitely part of it. But it's also just like putting this, this perspective of just one area of society, one per, one society's perspective of how sort of everybody thinks about reproduction. Or this assumption that you assume everyone's going to college or you assume mm-hmm. that everyone has these. And that you assume that people want to plan. Yes. And as I say, and that's the other piece, I feel like we've had conversations about this is that to say that you're planning a pregnancy also in itself has much of its own privilege in that you then think that everyone has the choice to only have sex when they want to. Right. So even even women who may have certain privileges could still be sexually assaulted, which could result in an unintended pregnancy. So thinking about it like that too, some things are just not in anyone's control, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so some things are just not in our control. Some things we just don't, people don't want in, to be in their control. So uh, there's a really good paper that will put it in our resources that I was reading during all this by Sonia Barrero, who's like one of my 
um, favorite researchers. Maybe we'll have to try and see if we can have her on. But she did a qualitative study looking at women's perceptions of planning pregnancies. And, and some women just, they don't like that word. They don't want to plan a pregnancy. That's not something that's valuable to them. That takes some of the fun and spontaneity out of life. Wasn't there another piece with the planning pregnancy too? And that, and maybe this came out in, in some of my research too, is that this like idea of responsibility and low socioeconomic status and planning pregnancies and and kind of how that can all coalesce and like wait if you're lower economic status but yeah you're planning to get pregnant oh yeah that doesn't seem responsible so that that came out through a couple of uh, different research participants in my dissertation and I think that's been written about in other studies too. So there's the the one side like, okay, maybe me as my my perspective is like, okay, I need to have these degrees before I have children and this job or this income or this house. Whereas, and that's what I'll do before I have children. Whereas some women will never attain those things. They don't necessarily want to, or they cannot. They may ne- never be able to afford their own home. They may never find a partner. They may never go to school um, and they may never have, you know, anything above minimum wage, for example. So women who are in one of those categories or in all of those categories, if they came and said, I'm planning to get pregnant, they don't want to admit that. And so a lot of the time, you know, either they just won't admit that or you kind of have to, you know, providers have, I think I'm trying to remember what this provider said, like, they're just not going to admit that. So you have to sort of talk about it through other, other manners. So mainly just like, not talking about that word plan, what can we do to make you healthy? in case you have a child, because those patients may never actually admit because it's socially undesirable that they plan to have a child when they don't have enough money or, or, you know, whatever. Yeah. So it's like this social pressure lens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like the social pressure of what's responsible or when it's responsible to have a kid. And Right. And if you really look at that ethically, so if we say, oh, women or fam, women and men or, you know, parents or people should only have children if they can afford them or whatever, um, have a car, that type of thing. Then basically what you're saying is people who are lower income or don't have certain things that they should never have children. Mm -hmm. And so are we as a, as a community of providers really willing to say something like that? Yes. Okay, sorry. We got really deep in the weeds there. (laughs) But I think it's an important conversation to have, especially when you're talking about this. And I don't want our listeners to be like, wow, like there's a lot of privilege in thinking about life planning and and talking about that. So I wanted to make sure that we acknowledge that, that we have acknowledged that. (laughs) (laughs) And then within this conversation, but also it's also important because this is coming from kind of like a top down, you know, this was a priority set by people at the top that 
this was a mandate within the clinic. So again, just wanted to get in the weeds, but we'll get back out of the weeds. Okay. (laughs) So can you tell our listeners about your research with reproductive life planning? Like what did you do then after the concept analysis? Yeah. So the concept analysis led me to sort of wonder, okay, so there's the Title 10 or the Office of Population Affairs and the CDC have this mandate slash recommendation that providers do this reproductive life plan. And it's supposed to do all these wonderful things for babies and women and families and society. So, and that's really difficult to look at, you know, does reproductive life planning do all these things when you really don't know what is being done. So, you know, you can say like, this is how the experts have defined reproductive life planning, but how do the clinicians um, define it, especially when this, you know, kind of going back to this mandate, it basically just says uh, all Title X providers should discuss reproductive life planning with your patients. It doesn't really even define it or say like, you have to, you know, you should do X, Y, Z. And this is how often you should do it. And this is the types of patients you should do this with or anything like that. So you really don't know what people are doing or how the, the providers are defining it, um, how it looks to them. So you really can't say like, oh, you know, reproductive life planning has led to all these things or not led to all these things because you don't know what reproductive life planning is actually looking like um, in the real world. So I wanted to look at that. So how is reproductive, how are providers using reproductive life planning? And I, I'm sorry, I keep saying providers, but I really wanted to look at like all clinicians. So, you know, just defining the terms like providers, I usually mean like licensed independent providers, like physicians, nurse practitioners, nurse midwives, physicians assistants. But I also wanted to look at, you know, health educators, nurses, medical assistants, anybody who could have that direct conversation with patients. It might not always be a provider. So I went and to several state Title X organizations within the Midwest. I think I maybe had seven states in the Midwest sign on. And I initially sent out surveys. And so the surveys were informed by that concept analysis. So I asked like, are you talking to your patients about when they want to have children? Are you talking to them about how many children they want to have? Are you talking to them about spacing of children? And then not only that, are are you talking to your patients about educational goals and their educational goals or their life goals or their career goals or their family history of, you know, cystic fibrosis and their environmental exposures? And um, those are like sort of all the health promotion topics that the reproductive life plan planning literature has suggested, um, you know, vaccination, folic acid, smoking, drinking drugs, chronic disease, you know, so like, are you talking to your patients about all these things? How often do you talk to your patients about all these things? And then I also wanted, I also asked 
staff do you like the types of patients that they talk about the reproductive life planning with? So is it women, women and men, you know, kind of the age ranges that they would consider bringing this up with? Like, are they bringing it up with their adolescent patients? Are they bringing up with their postmenopausal patients? You know, sort of what age ranges they start and stop. And then, you know, do they talk about reproductive life planning with their lesbian patients or their gay male patients or their trans patients. So I just think that's kind of a brief summary of, you know, just kind of asking them like how, if they talk about these things and how often and with who. So that led to, I think I had around 220 something um, clinicians throughout these states complete my survey. So then I really got into the good meat of it, so to speak. So I I took the results of those surveys and I pulled what we call a heterogeneous sample or maximum variation sampling to do qualitative interviews with. So basically what that means is you take the surveys and you look at certain questions and you try to pull together people that you really want to talk with one-on-one and for maximum variation. So you're trying to look for all different types of people. So some of the things I looked at were like, you know, I wanted to make sure I had a physician, nurse practitioner, midwife, nurse, health educator, medical assistant. I wanted sort of to talk to every level of clinician. And then also I had asked like questions about their how long they were practicing for, how long they practiced in Title 10, their age, their race, and their ethnicity. So I wanted to make sure I sort of got different people from those groups. But then I also wanted to make sure I looked at people who kind of did reproductive life planning a lot or people who really from the survey didn't really seem like they were doing it or that it was a low priority to them. So I really wanted to kind of get a wide perspective. So I did one-on-one phone interviews with 20 different clinicians and the my aims in the what in the types of the the way that I aimed my interview guide was not only to get at how they do reproductive life planning but also for them what they felt like their barriers and their facilitators were to this discussion and I purposely developed my interview guide so I could get at like the different levels of barriers and facilitators so like things that were sort of at the institutional level or even outside of that, like things that maybe were societal issues that they felt like were barriers or facilitators and then things for their, you know, that the patient sort of brings in with them. And then things that the the provider, the clinician has within themselves. So interpersonal barriers and facilitators. So before we get into all of that, and eventually I'd also like to discuss what were the characteristics of the persons doing it well, what did you learn then what reproductive life planning looked like in practice? Generally speaking, with reproductive life planning, it really seemed like it was all over the place. So some people were kind of doing maybe reproductive life planning, sort of, I would say, kind of the minimal. So, you know, they were asking patients some questions about like when they maybe wanted children and that type of thing. And then that was sort of how they define reproductive life planning. And then there were people who kind of, you know, just 
kind of were all over the place. Like they maybe would just do that at their initial, the patient's initial visit and never again, unless something changed. There were, I remember there was like a group of clinicians that had this like really very well thought out form and grid that they had that you could document their reproductive life plan and like put these different symbols on this grid. (laughs) So it, it really just ran all over the place, which was, you know, not necessarily surprising to me. But one of the things that I was surprised about, I would say, or um, really enjoyed the qualitative component. So in the in the quantitative survey, you know, you can see it's really very not descriptive in what you can see. So you, you can report like 85% of clinicians talk about a patient's reproductive goals at each annual visit, something very general like that. But when you do these qualitative interviews, you really see what they're doing, or as as far as what they self-report doing, obviously, generally speaking. But you could never never get this level of detail in a in a survey. So as I was analyzing the data from my qualitative interviews, I really saw a pattern. And um, this, I haven't published my paper yet, but I'm working on it. So you can't find these things at this point. Uh, I just like to put that out there. But I I found there were sort of three types, I would say, of clinicians, or I guess I I don't know why I want to call them types, but three ways clinicians viewed and, and did practice reproductive life planning. So the first sort of basic level was the screeners. So these were clinicians who use reproductive life planning as a screening tool. So like I I said, do you want to have children? When do you want the children? How many do you want? Um, So a good percentage of them, that's sort of where reproductive life planning was just getting at, at that, those answers. So they could kind of drive that conversation for like preconception health or contraception. Then there were the seed planters, I called them. So these clinicians, they like sort of conceptualize conceptualize reproductive life planning as like a little seed that they could put in somebody's mind. So they didn't necessarily have this long conversation about pregnancy intentions, but that they kind of encourage their patients to think about this plan and why it is important. And they didn't necessarily try to get at that plan, but just saying like, this is, you know, kind of something that you should think about and talk to your partner about that type of thing. So the third group really took reproductive life planning to a level further than planting the seed and they use reproductive life planning as an intervention. So these clinicians didn't necessarily do this with every single one of their patients. So some of them, they would feel like the screening was just fine because patients may have those answers right up the top of their head. But there is other patients that they've had, a lot of them, who would say, "Uh, if it happens, it happens. Or a patient might say that they don't want to get pregnant, but then they decline contraception and are sexually active. So those clinicians try to sort of shift the conversation outside of reproduction and focus on the patient's goals. And we kind of talked about that earlier, like obvious ones are college, starting a career, getting married, 
but, you know, really getting at like whatever the pa- the patient's goals are. So I think like some of the, the clinicians who did this, like talked about for some young people, it might be like getting on the cheerleading team or getting a car. So whatever that goal is to the patient. So and getting them to think about, okay, so you tell me like getting on the cheerleading team is really important to you. Um, how would a pregnancy factor into that? And then they can kind of step back and say, oh, I, you know, I never really thought about it like that. So, And then you can really get them to think how a pregnancy would impact their goals. So, and that's what I mean by they use it as an intervention. So they didn't just screen the patients uh, or these patients who seemed a bit ambivalent, but they helped them to work through their thoughts on it. Okay, so it sounds like that, you know, you'd mentioned that there was a lot of variation. Was there any sort of characteristics of the people who fell into that last group who were using it as an intervention? For example, were they the ones who have been practicing for a long time or were they in a specific field? You know, was there any unique characteristics about them? That is a really good question. And I had the same question when... I was analyzing my data and I did look at this as much as a research, a qualitative researcher can. So I don't have like statistical numbers because this is a qualitative sample, but I actually found that there wasn't necessarily a certain type. I looked at these three groups and I looked at some of their characteristics. So like how many years of experience they had, the type of clinician they were, if they were in a rural or urban area, and whether the clinic where they worked had a specific reproductive life planning protocol. And I also looked at how they rated reproductive life planning as a priority. So the providers who just did the screening for the patients. None of them were kind of categorized into like highly experienced. So none of those screeners had more than 20 years of experiences, which the people who did the seed planting and used reproductive life planning as an intervention, a lot of them had that 20 plus years of experience. I also found that advanced nurse practitioners, nurses, and other the other types of clinicians, so medical assistants or health educators, were represented in all three of those groups. But there were more RNs in the reproductive life planning as an intervention group. And I all of the urban, suburban, rural clinics were represented in those three groups. And I also found that all of the clinicians who used the reproductive life planning to screen patients only none of those clinics or none of the clinics had a specific reproductive life planning protocol, which the other two groups, um, some of their clinics did have those protocols in place. Interesting. So maybe not necessarily a provider characteristic, but more of a clinical characteristic. Yeah, a clinic. I think there is a little bit of a clinical characteristic. And then also, I think experience probably does Mm -hmm. is in play a little bit there too. I think that clinicians with more experience maybe feel more comfortable having these types of conversations. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So then within all of this variation, why do you think that the reproductive life planning is not uniformly practiced? I think the biggest thing, and 
Um, I think this is sort of kind of always the full back response to a lot of interventions, but is, you know, there really isn't great. There's not a great definition in the protocol necessarily. And there really isn't any training in this yet. Some groups I talked to, some clinicians had some training, but it was like very basic. And so I think that kind of goes into the fact that like some of these clinics did have a protocol and it was well-trained and then some just really never got anything on it. So I think that was one of the biggest reasons is I don't even know how to do that. But I think like also because every clinic is set up very differently So you would have clinics where a nurse practitioner, for example, would get an hour with a patient. And I think like a lot of our guests talk about this too. They'll get like an hour with their patient. It's really lovely and they can do things like this. But then other people get like 15 minutes or, you know, maybe the nurse practitioner or the physician assistant gets 15 minutes, but the RN, there's an RN there and the RN does a lot of this stuff, but some clinics don't even have RNs. So I think that's another part of it is just like the clinic structure and how that focuses in on any of these kind of conversational components. What are some other significant barriers or facilitators you found in your research related to reproductive life planning? Yeah. So again, this research isn't published yet, but the way that I saw some of the barriers or like some things, this is sort of how I've labeled them for now, but I might not keep it this way. So that's why I want to just preface that. But it seemed like from my conversations, there were barriers that clinicians really just couldn't do anything about, or they didn't feel like they could do anything about. And then there were some that they did, that there, there were barriers and they some of them um, were able to overcome them. So for example, things that a clinician really doesn't feel like they are able to control is the time, like I said, like, so the amount of time they get an appointment, that's really up to not up to them. And then also like having so many mandates to discuss. So they have to ask so many questions of these patients. And then not only is it overwhelming to them, like as the provider, but also to the patient. And so they don't necessarily get this consistent, high quality time with their patient to discuss reproductive life planning. Um, Another one that was talked about a lot that I haven't really mentioned yet that felt like it was outside of the the locus of control of the clinician is this general knowledge gap that patients come in with about sex and reproduction. So they felt like talking to people about pregnancy planning and how pregnancy happens and how contraception works um, was really challenging because they came in with hardly any knowledge or a lot of myths. And they felt like they were almost like starting from scratch in teaching them these things. And that was like super overwhelming, especially like if you have a 15 minute visit. And then there were a lot of, there were several clinicians in my group of 20 who had a lot of struggles talking to patients about side effects of contraception. So like this isn't necessarily reproductive life planning, but it was part of the discussion. So if you're talking to your patient about like, okay, you don't want kids um, right now. So let's talk about birth control. Well, these patients may say, oh, I'm not going to, I don't want an IUD like my friend's had that and it caused this. So 
you know, some of them were real side effects, some of them were anecdotal, odd experiences that might not be related to the contraception, but they just really didn't have, they didn't feel like they had the ability to necessarily change the minds or that, you know, it was even false information sometimes that like you, that maybe was a true side effect, but there was just a lot of fear for some women. And then some, some kind of things that providers or clinicians talked about other barriers that probably could be addressed more easily is like I said, training, they didn't get training some of them and they felt like they may be able to have those conversations better if they knew how to work the conversation in a bit better. And some of them, like there was a nurse who didn't know about contraceptive methods. So she had never really been trained on all the different types of methods. And she worked in a family planning clinic. And then some of them didn't feel, and this could go back to a training issue, but some of them didn't feel like they had the best communication skills. So they didn't know how to get patients to open up and talk about this reproductive life plan or how to like sort of roll with resistant patients. And then, oh, another another barrier, and I think that a lot of us can appreciate is like electronic health records. So you might have this really in-depth conversation uh, about reproductive life planning, but you really can't document that well in the EHR or like you have an E or like, it's like the flip side, like the EHR drives a conversation. So it just prompts your question. So like, how many children do you want to have? Um, when do you want to have them? So some people's, some clinicians e- EHR was set up that way. So that's sort of how the conversation went. And so they didn't really have those deep, meaningful conversations because they're looking at the screen. And then I talked about this in previously too, but a lot of clinicians felt like their patients just really didn't have a reproductive life plan when they came in or had never really thought about it before. So they, especially, you know, the people who wanted to use it more as a screening. So like they would come in and like, why are you asking me this? I don't know. I'm 15 years old. Um, So they really didn't know how to sort of manage um, those conversations. So what were some facilitators to to doing the reproductive life planning then? Yeah. So uh, one of the things that another big surprise I don't, you know, in hindsight now was I had originally went into this thinking like, okay, I'll list like all the barriers and all the facilitators. Well, I found that there were specifically nine clinicians out of my 20 who use reproductive life planning uh, as an intervention. And so I looked at sort of how they answered these questions about barriers. And I found that all of them had you know, they listed things as barriers, but then they had solutions for the barriers. Share the solutions then with our listeners. <laughs> and the, and again, these are the solutions to the things like that you could control, not to like some of these bigger cultural issues, like patients don't have sex education before they come into your office. But so like, let's see. So for example... So like I mentioned, you know, inadequate training and communications issues were a barrier. So the solution that these clinicians had were like, you know, seek out the training yourself or ask your clinic manager to bring something in or, you know, there's things online, that type of thing. Go to a conference. And then another common facilitator, and this was like, these were things 
also cited by other people, not just the nine, but thinking about experiences that they had, which made them more empathetic and more person-centered and and a more trusting provider. So these are things like they could be professional experiences that they had gone through with other patients, or it could be um, personal life experiences where they personally live through an experience that a patient might be sharing with them. And a lot of these clinicians would also sort of sometimes share these experiences with their patients. So like I, there was like a nurse practitioner who had a teen pregnancy. So she tells that story to some of her younger clients. So it makes her relatable and that, you know, it, or it happened to her, so it could happen to me. And they felt like, you know, sharing those, those stories with their patients gave them gave their patients a deeper understanding of consequences of certain choices. And then also, you know, in addition to the training, you was like just seeking out educational materials. So both educational materials for them, but also things that they could maybe just give their patient. And I think this could also help with time. So, and I'll put this in the resources in our show notes, but I, I don't know if it's the CDC Um, I feel like some things have changed since I wrote my dissertation, but um, like they have like worksheets that provide that patients can do to help them think about a reproductive life plan. So it might not necessarily be something that you as a clinician need to talk to your patients about, but have them work through, you know, something on online or a worksheet that you could provide to them. And I think the, the biggest really helpful piece or is that barrier that I talked about where patients come in where first they, they, you know, there are some patients that will come in and they don't want to have a plan or they're ambivalent. Like, so these patients might say if it happens, it's okay, or it's God's will. And then there's also patients we talked about before too, who their behavior doesn't necessarily match their pregnancy intentions. So the, the, you know, classic example is women who maybe are in, you know, having unprotected sex, but then they say to you as a clinician, like, I don't want to get pregnant. That would be really bad. So you're kind of thinking like, okay, well, why don't you want to take birth control then? But you don't necessarily want to say it like that. So uh, there is also a group of clinicians who talked about a third group of patients who maybe their plan was not so great. And these were typically clinicians who talked about having teenagers come in saying they wanted to get pregnant. So like, um, for example, like a nurse practitioner told me that she had a 17 year old who was like, yeah, my boyfriend wants a baby. And the provider sees so much potential in this, in this patient, but you know, sort of how do you maintain the the person centeredness and the non-judgmental piece while dealing with these barriers? And this is where the most important, I think, finding from my own my dissertation research is, is how to sort of roll with this. And this is where this discussion of life goals really came into play. So these providers use reproductive life planning like I said, as an intervention. So they discuss goals with their patients. And so I can share some quotes from my my study. Yeah. And you can kind of see how they, they explained it in their own words. So there was a registered nurse who said, but what we do, we back down a little bit. We sit back and we think about it. 
and we talk about goals and plans. So if they say, I don't know, that means to me, usually they're teenagers. And then I go into, you know, did you finish, do you want to finish high school? Or, you know, what's your passion for what you're going to be doing later on? I do maybe a little bit of almost like options counseling. Well, if you got pregnant now, what would life be like in one year? And you have a three-month-old baby. How would that fit into where you see yourself? And then there was a registered nurse who said, I think it's important because you can provide them that support and that reassurance. Like, hey, yeah, those are awesome goals. Let's talk about how we can keep those going. Then it gives them that extra encouragement. They do have a purpose. And you really do care about why I'm here and just give them that extra support. So another sort of facilitator or solution to this pregnancy ambivalence was clinicians would talk about a patient's feelings about pregnancy or having children. So they didn't necessarily focus on like this concrete plan, but they would say something like, Like, for example, if a patient said, well, if it happens, it happens, which is like my least favorite thing ever. This is the nurse practitioner talking, but I keep a poker face on it. I hate when people say that, but I will ask them, how would you feel if those plans change? Like if it does happen. So providers saying that simply like, how would you feel if you got pregnant right now really helped patients explore and clarify their um, pregnancy intentions. And then another solution was, you know, really to a- ask open-ended questions to explore ambivalence for those for certain patients. So like, when would you like to have children less than one year, one to three years, three to five years, or more than five years? So they kind of asked an open-ended question. And then if the patient wasn't able to answer, they would make it sort of more close-ended, like they had some choices, and that would help them at least narrow down to a certain time frame. And then I think just really generally speaking is, you know, taking reproductive life planning out of the equation and focusing on health promotion. So really all of us should be healthy, you know, like we should try to be our healthiest selves or help our patients be their healthiest selves. So regardless of a patient's pregnancy intention, what really matters is, you know, are they focusing on health promoting behaviors? So trying to focus on the health promotion behaviors are already doing and not really necessarily factoring in their pregnancy intention. So maybe they just never are clear about their pregnancy intention, or maybe that I think a lot of providers would talk about certain cultures. The husband is really the one who makes that decision. So you're really not necessarily going to be able to have this conversation with a patient. So really just focusing on like, okay, how can we help you be your healthiest self um, because it really for your baby or just for you. And then I think there was just the one that Nicole and I always stress is practicing person-centered care. So, and I think that kind of just goes into sort of what I was saying before is for the patients who say, for example, that it's God will or God's will, or it's up to their husband, thinking about it like, okay, they are going to have a intended pregnancy then. So you want to make sure you 
talk about preconception health. So spacing of pregnancies, folic acid, healthy eating and exercising, any sort of age risk associations. So being non-judgmental and really remain person-centered while doing your diligence to promote health is really, you know, if you can't really get those really clear pregnancy intentions um, or work through those with the patients, you know, considering that pregnancy as an intended one. So you had talked about along the way, some things that surprised you. And so, and, and again, you had mentioned quite a few of those. So overall, if you had to pick one thing from all of your beautiful research on reproductive life planning, what surprised you the most or excited you the most about it? I think the thing that excited me the most was, you know, when I found these nine providers that use reproductive life planning as an intervention and was able to pull out from their interviews, you know, what they did exactly. Um, to make it an intervention. And I think that can hopefully help, you know, future trainings on reproductive life planning or educational materials. So, um, so clinicians can sort of use those strategies that these, these clinicians spoke about, and they are also able to sort of, you know, roll with resistance or help that ambivalent patient or that, that non-planning, non-planning patient um, sort of figure out like a trajectory for, um, you know, what do they want contraception or do they need to talk about health promoting behaviors? So from a practical standpoint, then how can providers who are listening incorporate reproductive life planning into their practice? Yeah, that's a really good question is kind of like summarizing all this into like, how or how does this make sense for me and my clinic? So, and I think sort of using all those three methods of reproductive life planning could really, I think everybody can try to do those depending on the patient they have in their office at that moment. So for some patients, you may ask these questions like, okay, when do you want to have a kid? Or do you want to have baby in the next 12 months? So there's like that one key question, maybe some listeners have heard of, I'll put that on our resources too. That's sort of like this, that all providers should be asking like women, do you want to get pregnant in the next 12 months? Um, And that's more of like a safety thing sometimes. If you're going to prescribe a drug that's harmful in pregnancy, but as far as your screening patients, when would do you want to have kids or do you want to have kids? How many? When would you like those? I think those are, you know, somewhat easy questions that you can get at with some patients. And you might not necessarily always know who those patients are, but you could sort of start asking those questions, especially like, the, you know, do you want to have kids and when do you want your first one? Because a lot of people are not going to like, I want three children, two years apart. You know, that's maybe somebody would say that, but we all know that doesn't necessarily happen. So you can at least start by asking, when do you want your first child if you want one at all? And then taking it, if you had like, then you can kind of take it to that seed planting phase if you need to. So if you have a patient in your office and maybe you just, 
you know, you really don't have the time to get in into this because maybe they're there for like an STD screening or, you know, like they're having a, an itch or something that they just need examined and they, it's not like a, a long appointment. If they don't really know the answer to these questions, you could just say, hey, you know, it's really important to sort of think about how pregnancy would fit in your life and just kind of leave it at that. So plant that seed in their mind, but you don't need to have this really long in depth conversation. And then if you do have those patients who do say, I don't know if it happens, it happens, or um, no, I really don't want to get pregnant, but I don't want a contraception right now. Those are the patients that you you might want to consider doing some of these things like we talked about, like focusing on goals outside of reproduction and focusing on their feelings and, you know, focusing on health promotion behavior. So if they they do get pregnant, they're on folic acid. I think that's sort of the easiest thing to sort of get at because it's like a, a pill that doesn't have any side effects, I don't think. So I think you just kind of have to individualize it to your patient. But I think overall, if you at least you know, as the provider, what your patient is thinking as far as, you know, when they want to have children. And I think that's really important, not only so you can help your patient as far as achieve those goals, like whether it's the type of contraception or healthy pregnancy, but also like if you're going to prescribe them something that might be harmful in a, for a pregnancy or you're concerned about their safety or something like that, I think that's always good to kind of know what's on the horizon for your patient. Excellent. So then what special communication considerations are there for discussing reproductive life planning with patients? I think there's two big things to get at here. And we've talked about them a little bit along the way, but being really sensitive to someone's culture. So maintaining that person-centeredness. So you might not necessarily agree that it should be up to the husband to decide when this woman is going to have her next child. But you know, you have to be sensitive to that patient in front of you and making sure that she's healthy, regardless of what her decision or her values are. Obviously, you want to make sure that she's in a safe environment. But if that's her culture, and that's her normal, and we need to respect that. Um, So making sure that kind of leave those, those biases outside the door, or your own values and perspectives. And then I think the other part too, to be really sensitive about, again, is this privilege, both that some people are just never able to achieve their plan, or maybe they just don't even have plans because this is not something that they do, or that their life is sort of out of their control. So being really sensitive to that, you know, whether that's they're in an abusive relationship, or they're sexually assaulted, for example, or, you know, we talked about people who are victims of human trafficking, like, obviously, that is a safety issue, but we shouldn't be judging them on their using contraception or not using contraception all the time, because some of those things, they're under coercion and that type of thing. And they just might not be telling you that at that time. We obviously want to want to screen for those things and always have our door open and have a trusting relationship so they can disclose those things to us. But being judgmental or, you know, sort of negative in your approach is really going to make that 
that less likely to happen that your patients are going to come to you with that. And then also being non-judgmental too, when you have a patient who you just feel like maybe you personally don't think that they should have children. That's that's definitely something that I've seen and felt and talked about with a lot of other providers, like you're worried about that. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's their life. And so your job is to help them sort of be their healthiest self. So, and you talked about that. We talked about that too, with some people will just never have an income that's high enough to support a child on their own. They maybe need government assistance. So making sure that you're sort of keeping that out of your conversation and and trying to keep your biases about that out of the appointment, because it's really at this point, it's not about you, it's about your patient and, and what their goals are. And I agree. I think a lot of this does come back to that judgmental piece. And then I think of other past episodes that would be really helpful are listening to, I think it's episode two with that's just talking about unconscious bias and exploring where do we get these thoughts of, well, you have a minimum wage job. How can you afford a kid? You know, and then exploring where does that judgment come from? How do we recognize that and working through it? Because it really, it's not productive to a patient provider interaction. And I think a lot of it also too is recognizing like your own privilege. And, and I, I mean, I've heard it multiple times, like, well, how do people not know how to get pregnant or how the, how you get pregnant? How do they not know that? And so I think a lot of times we assume that we've had this of education and we know this. So like, how can other people not know this and just be really alarming to others? I think, I mean, I would like to think that overall, I feel like providers who especially work in sexual and reproductive health are aware of all of these things and in the interactions and they account for all that. But I mean, we've also had a lot of conversations recently about gynecology and how they're taking statues down about the father of gynecology and recognizing how the knowledge, where that knowledge base comes from and that it's it's not built on an ethical knowledge base. So again, it, yeah, it's just being sensitive to all that, recognizing it and, and knowing that judgment is just not really going to be helpful. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I was trying to think of if there was any other episodes. Well, I know we talk about it too with substance abuse with Kaylin Klee. Oh, yeah. Substance abuse one is a really good one. Yeah, because you're going, we're all going to have a patient that I I see this a lot in my social network because I have a lot of friends who are labor and delivery nurses or NICU nurses. Mm -hmm. And so they're sort of dealing with babies who are born with the substance issue from mother and seeing the comments that they they make. And, you know, and I like to hope that those are just between yeah. <laughs> between us. But if sometimes if you sort of are saying these things out loud, you're obviously thinking them and, and those biases are going to come out in your conversation. So mm-hmm. we just need to try to reframe, I think, even our conversations that we have outside of the exam room. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're never totally going to get rid of our biases. And we're definitely never going to get rid of our perspectives or what we think is valuable or important. But trying to reframe those conversations, I think, is helpful in our own mind, Mm -hmm. but also to sort of mirror that with somebody else um, and get them to sort of rethink how they think about things, too. 
Yeah. And I think the one with Dr. Klee is just really good. She had talked about unconditional positive regard and some really good principles that she uses in her practice. I know in some other podcasts. I think the LGBTQ series is really good for that too. Also, another episode when we talked to Dr. Aisha Mays about uh, teens and adolescents, she had a good conversation. I know that we got into, okay, what happens if you do have a teen who wants to get pregnant or talks about getting pregnant or doesn't want to use birth control. But again, their behaviors aren't aligning with their goals. I know that she had a really great conversation about that as well. That's episode eight. That would be a good one to check out. And then. Oh, and I will definitely want to push the Christine Dellendorf because you're going, you know, I think she talked a lot about this pregnancy ambivalence a bit too, or patients who are not wanting to get pregnant, but don't want birth control. So how to talk with patients about contraception. Mm -hmm. Um, She has a lot of good tips. Yes. And that's episode 16. And then I think that you had talked about how when you leave an interaction, you have these thoughts about a patient. And I know that in episode 17 with Dr. Deanna Carvajal, we talk about the concept of post-judging which is after you leave the, the clinic encounter, you you form this judgment about a patient. And so we talk about post-judging in that episode as well. Oh, you have a really good memory. I'm straight up reading the summary for, on our website. <laughs> <so. laughs> but yeah, so really what we're talking about today or on this episode, really there's a lot of common themes or common threads that run through all of our episodes. But yeah, there's definitely some good ones if you want specific pointers. And really that unconscious bias one would be great. Dr. Klee and uh, Dr. Dellendorf. Yeah, what all, they're all, well, I mean, of course we love all of our podcasts, but in relation to this one, those would also be some great ones to check out to kind of reinforce what we're talking about today. So Stephanie, are there some other places that uh, providers can go to learn more about reproductive life planning? Before we recorded, I looked up some of the ones that I used in my dissertation and some of them were already gone. So um, (laughs) it's, you know, but it's been two years, but I think a really good one, there's reproductive life plan and it's kind of an assessment toolkit and it's at beforeandbeyond.org. So it's like before, between and beyond pregnancy. They have a really good assessment that that patients can go through or you can kind of go through with your patient. And then the CDC also had one and that one is more geared towards what patients can do on their own. Like we talked about, if if you don't have time to necessarily talk about that, that's something that they can kind of maybe do on their own. I don't know if they will, but. And then uh, another one that I mentioned is this one key question, which is a trademarked thing. And uh, it's based off this, this one question, would you like to become pregnant in the next year? But there's more to it if you subscribe. I think, I don't know. It's like a whole, I think, I don't know, it's like a training program. There's more to it than just that question, but I think that's like where you start off with. And that I think is now operated by the powertodecide.org. I think they were the ones that had the Teen Pregnancy Coalition and then they changed their name. But so things kind of have shifted around. But yeah, one key question is the name of it. Great. 
So I, of course, would personally like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add before we end? Uh, no, I just really liked being able to talk a little bit about my research and I hope it wasn't too dry and boring <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> I, of course, don't think so, but I'm possibly just as dry and boring and have read literally everything you've ever written, including all of your drafts. So That's true. <laughs> I, I also true. nerd out on your stuff as well. So I'm also probably not a great judge, but. all right well perfect thanks so much stephanie thanks and as always we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the woman-centered health podcast we are always looking for new supporters sponsors and guests so if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect let us know you can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com 